Thank you very much, Seth. And thank you for the uh, invitation to speak to you this morning. And thank you for um, your fellowship in the gospel, because in the early days of lockdown, we attended quite a lot of your services, although you wouldn't know that because we were sitting in our living room in Bedfordshire. Uh, but in joining in with the, the worship and benefiting from uh, Seth's ministry and Joseph as well. Um, those of you who don't know me, um, I'm the vice principal, whatever that means, of London Seminary, which exists to train men for gospel ministry, for the pastoral and preaching ministry. And um, we have a, an interest in this church. My wife, Hilary, grew up here. Um, and uh, we still have relatives in this church, so it's always a pleasure to come back. So I'd like us to take a little look at Jeremiah 29 this morning, and the first thing we should face up to is the fact that it doesn't seem to have anything to do with our lives. As we read through Jeremiah 29, and as Seth very briefly explained the circumstances, of the writing of this letter, it seems to have very little to do with my experience or your experience. This letter was written about 594, 594 years before Christ to Jewish people who had been deported forcibly hundreds of miles away from the Promised Land, from the city of Jerusalem, to the area around the city of Babylon, which was the world power at, the, at that time. And, and about seven years after this letter was written, Jerusalem itself was captured, the walls were breached, the Babylonian army came in, they uh, destroyed the temple, took away all the contents from it back to Babylonia, and deported another large swathe of the population. Now, we occasionally see events like this, on our TV screens, sadly. We've seen in recent years the uh, hundreds, thousands of refugees from, from Syria, and of course, most recently, we've seen the turmoil in Afghanistan and people being displaced there, but it's something that we have maybe only observed on a screen. It's not something that's part of our experience. So the question is, what does this chapter have to say to us? The, the first thing is, it reminds us of two things that the Bible isn't. The Bible is not a book of timeless religious philosophy so that you can sort of open it for a blessed thought every day. It reminds us that Christian faith is rooted in experience. It's not just a collection of ideas. It is a, a life of faith which we live and that people experience and understand God through the events of their lives, like even a traumatic event such as the one that lies behind this letter in Jeremiah 29. On the other hand, we've also got to say that the Bible is not just a record of historical events and people who lived through interesting times. So that we don't just say, well, it's all very interesting. I heard an interesting lecture this morning on something that happened in the Iron Age back in the days of the Babylonian Empire, and it was all very fascinating. We believe that God speaks 
through the events and the experiences of the lives of his people down through history and he says things which are still relevant to us in the way that we live today. So between those two extremes of thinking the Bible is just a sort of self-help book full of nice thoughts that we can take and apply in our uh, lives and make ourselves feel better, or on the other hand, it's just history, between those two things, we believe in a living, powerful, active, penetrating word which nourishes and feeds and teaches and all the other things. Note that this chapter begins, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent. So Jeremiah is writing, and yet how does he begin his letter? This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. So we recognize that through the human authorship of this man Jeremiah, who is in a particular time, in a particular place, very remote remote and distant from us now, nevertheless, in his words, we hear God's words. If you go back to the beginning of the book of Jeremiah, you have something very similar there. The words of Jeremiah, this is the word of the Lord, because he is called by God as a prophet and given words to say. So then, what is chapter 29 of Jeremiah about? It's about how to live your life in the most bewildering and disorientating of circumstances. And I think that this letter has a lot to say to us today because we're asking questions now as Christians about where we fit into society. Society around us has changed and is changing very rapidly. And it's interesting, I've never felt my age so much as I've been lecturing recently on um, contemporary issues with uh, some of the students at the seminary, realizing that they weren't even born when when postmodernism started to be talked about. And one of the students said, so have you actually seen this change in your lifetime? Yes, of course I have, because I'm just old enough. Society has changed and now it's increasingly secularized, increasingly unsympathetic to Christian belief and increasingly ignorant about what Christians believe. And that was the world into which these captives had gone hundreds of miles from their own homeland into Babylon and they were surrounded by a society which was probably largely unsympathetic, almost totally ignorant of the things that they believe, their distinctive values in life, their religious beliefs and so on. And they would have been asking the question, how do we fit in? And Jeremiah writes to answer that question. So there are three things I want us to consider this morning. The first is that Jeremiah, or God speaking through Jeremiah, tells them how to live. Very practical. How, how we just, how are we going to live? Now we're in this new place, you know, we've, you put the rucksack down, and maybe the tent, and you think, okay, this is where we've been told we're going to live. How are we going to do it? And you'll notice that they are given some very practical instructions in verse 5. They've been told to build, to settle down, to plant, to eat, to marry and give in marriage, to maintain their numbers. And all these things are what we might call secular activities. Now, I don't actually believe that there is a distinction between spiritual and secular 
But we use this terminology. We don't think of these things as part of our spiritual lives as Christians. This is just living life. And God says, get on with it. Get on with living your life. But then we have something really remarkable in verse 7. If you turn to verse 7. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now the word here in Hebrew, you've probably heard the word shalom, and it's often translated peace. Here, the New International Version has, has, has made a double word, peace and prosperity, but it means wholeness, well-being, fulfillment, satisfaction, all those kinds of ideas. And so the message here is put down roots. And of course, part of the reason for that is because you're going to be there 70 years. Those of you who have gone will die in exile. You, some of you will have children who will also die in exile, and maybe it will be their grandchildren who will eventually come out. So you are there for the duration. Put down roots, but be a blessing to the people around you. Now what's the natural thing for this group of people, having been forcibly repatriated, deported under military arrest as it were, had to walk hundreds of miles across a fairly inhospitable landscape to this new place. What's the natural thing to do under those circumstances? The natural thing to do is to form a little ghetto, isn't it? The natural thing to do is to cling together, try and create some sense of community, and regard the people around you who speak a different language, have different culture and customs and religious practices that you detest, the, the natural thing to do is to think um, we want nothing to do with them. As long as we can stay within our own little bubble and try and preserve life as it is, life as we know it, life as we're comfortable with, that's the most natural thing to do. And God says, I want you to do what is completely unnatural, what is counterintuitive, what is the last thing you would dream of doing, and that is engage with the society around you, engage with the people and be a blessing to them and seek their well-being. Now why does God say that? And there is a, a, a deeply theological reason for this. To do with their very existence. And it goes right back to Abraham, from whom they were all descended. And when God called Abraham out of this very same part of the world to which they had now been deported, God called them out and he said, you've got to forsake that, forsake that society, that culture, even your family, and I will make you into a great nation. Be a great nation. Be a blessing in order that blessing will come from you, through you, to all the peoples around you. This is Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, if you want to read it. It's arguably one of the most important, some, some people would even say the most important verse in the Old Testament. And so the purpose of God coming out and being drawn out by God, out of, if you like, an unbelieving world, was so that God through him can reach out to an unbelieving world. And so God is now saying, this hasn't changed. Everything in your life seems to have changed, but your very reason for being hasn't changed. I have still called you to myself as my people in order that through you I will reach the world. God didn't need to do it that way, but this is the way that he chose to do it. To reach the world 
and for his people to be the means of his blessing and also his judgment on the nations. And so it didn't actually matter whether the Israelites were in their own country, safe within their own borders under a king like David or Solomon, where they're a world power and the Hiram king of Tyre and the queen of Sheba are coming and bowing down and saying, wow, you're amazing. Or whether his people, as we find them in the days of Jeremiah, are being carted off into exile, into a strange and alien and hostile land. It didn't matter. The purpose remained. You're there in order to be a blessing to the world. And so, in Christian terms, what are Christians for? Why are we in the world? What is our relationship? What is our place in the world? Jesus said to his disciples, you, and the word you is emphatic, you and you only are the light of the world. You, of all people, are the salt of the earth. And what's really important about those verses is that Jesus didn't say, I want you to think of yourselves as though you are light and salt, or I want you to try quite hard to be light and salt in the world. He just said, you are. And what he's really saying is, if you aren't it, there is no light and there is no salt. And this is not an option for you, and it's not a command, and it's not a, um, a sort of aspiration or a, a lifestyle choice. This is what you are. Yes, you can not be light, you can hide your light, you can not be salty, but you can't actually, you have no option, you have no choice over, this is what you are called to be. And so as Christians, how does Jesus go on in those words? He says that, that the world around you may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is our purpose. And so we belong exactly where we are in this world, in this society today. Because we are salt and light, if we are Christians. That is our place in society. And so we must not in any way follow the impulse to retreat into a ghetto, to lock the doors of the church, to keep ourselves safe, and weather the storm, as it were, of secularism, secularization, in the world around us. That's not what we're meant to do. That's not what we're for. We are, we belong in society and our function, our role is to be its salt and light. Second thing then is whom to heed? Who do we listen to? Who do we listen to? So if the first uh, instruction is an in, a command to engage with society, the lesson, the second is to be realistic. And there's a great warning, as you probably realize, as Seth read this chapter to us, against false prophets in these verses. We see it in verses 8 and 9, first of all. Uh, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. And then you know at the end of the chapter, there's quite a long section there, particularly naming and shaming some of the most prominent of these false prophets prophets who were giving false hopes to the people. Some of you will know that in the early months of the First World War, there was this phrase, it will all be over by Christmas. And how bitterly wrong that seems now, with the benefit of hindsight. 
And similarly, there were people there saying, do you know, the Babylonian Empire is going to collapse. And within a very short time indeed, we'll all be back home again. Notice what it says in verse 8. This is really revealing. Do not listen, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. But you see, the thing there is, it doesn't say, do not listen to their dreams. It says, do not listen to the dreams that you encourage them to have. Now, what's going on here? They are telling people what they want to hear. That's why they are so popular. That's why Jeremiah was so deeply unpopular. Why he had such a rough time in life. Why he was under house, house arrest. Why he was uh, thrown into an underground uh, pit and left to die, with, sunk down uh, up to his knees in the mud. Because people didn't want to hear what he was saying, even though it was the truth. What they did want to hear were all those prophets who stood up and said, do you know what, good times are around the corner. This isn't going to last. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be delivered. God is going to deliver us. And the letter here in verse 20, uh, chapter 29 of Jeremiah says, don't listen to them. Don't live in denial. The Christian life is about realism, not about escape. We don't come here on a Sunday to escape from the world, do we? Do we? That's not why we're here. At least it shouldn't be, but I recognize that tendency within myself as much as anybody else. There can be that feeling, well, I'm just going to escape from the, the harshness and the hostility of the world. Christian faith is not an escape. It is facing up to reality. But of course there are plenty of false gospels. Um, there is, of course, the prosperity gospel, which teaches that the purpose of Christian faith is to improve your life, to get rich, to be healthy, to be successful, to gain all those things that a consumer society around us says are just within our grasp. that Christian faith is there to make our lives com comfortable. Or there's the psychological gospel, which is that Christian faith is there to make us feel happy. Because we live in an existential age, deeply, deeply influenced by existential philosophy, and it rubs off on us. And we think, well, if I feel happy, then things are going well. And if I don't feel happy, something's wrong. And my aim in life is to feel happy all the time. That's existentialism. And although there is wonderful joy and hope in believing in Christ, Christianity is not just a sort of therapy religion. And those very well-known verses that, that Seth highlighted here about, um, I, I know the plans I have to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future, we could approach those, that verse in exactly that way and say, let's take this verse out of its context and just say, well, this is God's word to me today and I feel happier that's a false gospel. There's also, I think, a gospel that I've never heard anybody preach, but I think it's there and maybe it's inside our heads. And that is the idea that, well, at the moment, society seems to be increasingly secular and increasingly hostile uh, towards Christianity and increasingly misrepresenting what we believe and what we stand for and so on. But there's going to be a swing back before too long, it can't carry on like this 
and we will go back to how things were. That's a false gospel. That's a false hope. Now, I don't know how Western society is going to pan out over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. I don't know that at all. But one thing I'm fairly confident is it's not going to go back because society never does. Things change. So we must not entertain those ideas, oh, it was so much nicer 10, 15, 20, 50 years ago, and let's pray to God that he will take us back there. You see, the people in Jeremiah's day, they were given this great promise by God that after 70 years of captivity, there will be a return. You will go back to the promised land. You will go back and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And that is exactly what happened from 539 BC onwards in a most remarkable way with the uh, defeat of Babylonia by the Persians. And the, almost the first thing that the Persian Emperor Cyrus did was to say to people, go back, go back to your homelands, rebuild your shrines. Amazing. But they did not go back to the same world that they had left 70 years earlier. And in fact, in some ways it was harder, and in many ways it was better. Because now they had been changed. They had heeded the warnings. They had listened to the uh, chastisement that God had preached and they went back a chastened people no longer idolatrous with a greater sense of purpose and identity but they did not go back to the world as it had been so that's the th second thing whom to heed and the third one is what to believe and the simple line here is be full of hope be full of hope as we were driving up in the car this morning, one member of my family asked what I was preaching on, and eventually I, they managed to force me to tell them I was preaching from Jeremiah, and it was suggested that this probably tied in in some way with my basic pessimism on the world, and how typical that he would choose Jeremiah being, but actually this is full of hope. Jeremiah 29, writing to captives in exile, it's full of hope, because the practical instructions in this chapter flow from the covenantal hope of Deuteronomy 30. What do I mean by that? I mean that way back in the days of Moses, poised on the brink of the promised land, before they were just about to enter for the very first time, and God laid out before them the whole of history and said, you're going to break the covenant, you're going to fail, and eventually I'm going to send you into exile. But when you turn back to me with all of your heart, then I will bring you back out of captivity. Almost word for word what God says through Jeremiah here in chapter 29. So they had a real hope that had been prophesied hundreds of years earlier and was being reinforced now. Now, of course, it was a hope deferred. And it's just interesting that this morning, children's talk was all about hope, wasn't it? And what is hope? And is it a sort of, oh, I wish this might happen, or is it a sure and certain hope, steadfast and certain? Well, it's a steadfast and certain hope, but it's not an instant fix. The same word in Hebrew means to hope and to wait for. And in our very fast modern consumerist you know, world, I can just about bear that it takes 38 seconds for my computer to start up when I press the button, but that's quite a long time really, but it's, it's not bad, 38 seconds. What kind of a world are we living in? Everything's got to be instant, hasn't it? We don't wait for anything. As Christians, part of our calling is to wait. 
and to wait in the light of the certainty of the hope that lies ahead of us. Because the hope is built on God's unchanging nature. Did you notice in this letter, verse 4, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 14, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from the captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. What's he saying? He's saying, it's not about the Babylonians. Don't think the Babylonians took you into captivity. I did it. I was there in control of the whole process. Back again. Just as surely as I took you there, I will back. And so those with this hope are encouraged to return to their God and seek him in verses 12 and 13. You will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. It's Deuteronomy 30. Same thing for Christians. The Apostle John, writing in his first letter, 1 John chapter 3, says, try and get your heads round. That's not quite how it's translated, but that's essentially what he means. Try and get your heads round. Um, what's, what's happened to us here? That the, the fact that we can call ourselves the children of God. And then he goes on, and that's what we are. It's not just that we're deluding ourselves and we're making ourselves feel, uh, you know, very proud and, and so on because we're thinking of ourselves that way. That's actually what we are. And then he goes on to talk about, now we, we, we still don't know the half of it. We don't know what we will be. When the Lord Jesus returns, we do know that we will be like him and we'll see him face to face. And beyond that, I can't go, he says. It's just too wonderful, really, to describe and, and for our minds to comprehend. And then he says, everyone who has this hope purifies himself. In other words, this hope is not pie in the sky when you die. This hope is the thing which changes your life now. It's the thing that you are looking forward to, the return of Christ, the redemption of our bodies, a new nature, a sinless nature, a sinless world, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwell. All that conditions how we live now. If that is what we are looking forward to and it is as sure and certain as God bringing Israel back out of the exile, then it determines how we live our lives now, if that is true. Christianity is a religion of hope. And our society is hopeless. It is hopeless. Christianity is a religion of hope. Hope based on the unchanging character of God in the midst of a changing world. These captives that Jeremiah was writing to were to be fully engaged in the world because of the hope of future salvation. Fifty-eight years later, there's a man called Daniel who has lived almost all his life in the city of Babylon and he's seen the whole of the Babylonian Empire come and go and fall and collapse and been taken over by the Persians and he's still there and at the end of 70 years of all that captivity, so by now he must be getting on for 90, he starts praying to God and saying, right, take us back, take us back. Why? 
because open in front of him he has a copy of the book of Jeremiah and he reads in it that God has promised after 70 years you will come back and so Daniel then dares to pray bring us back you've promised it that's living and Daniel lived all his life in the light of that hope and it conditioned the way that he lived in the midst of a secular society you probably heard this before but it's worth saying again Martin Luther great reformer said that if I knew that Christ would come back tomorrow I would plant an apple apple tree today in other words, even if I knew that Christ would return tomorrow, I would still be today busy and active in my world doing the things that I need to do. So where does the Christian, where does the church fit into a secular society? Well, the first is we belong in it. We belong in it. We do not belong to it, but we belong in it. And our purpose, as we've seen, is to be salt and light. And through that, for the people around us, to come to a knowledge of God. So just being in it is purposeful. It's where we're meant to be and God is working out a purpose through it. Even if it doesn't feel like it at nine o'clock tomorrow morning, on the bus to work, or whatever you're doing in the supermarket or wherever you are, there's a purpose to you being in this world. And we are to work and to pray for its well-being and its wholeness and its peace. And we should be involved in the world in which we live for good. We do not have a ministry. We do not have a calling. We were never uh, commanded by God to stand on the sidelines carping and criticizing. And of all people, we should be the people walking around hopeful with a real hope. I think a lot of people in our society are staring into the abyss. They're looking at climate change, they're looking at global pandemics, they're looking at all these things, and they have no hope. We, of all people, should be hopeful because we are looking forward to the redemption of all things. We're the ones looking around saying, do you know what, this is a wonderful world created by God, even though now it's fallen and cursed. And if you think this is good, you just don't know what's coming. In when God remakes, makes all things new. And so, because we are looking forward to the redemption of all things, we are active in society redemptively now, trying to redeem the world around us in that sense. Yes, by preaching the gospel, but also by being a wholesome force for good in society, being the sort of people that people will turn to because they recognize that we have hope. So let me finish with some words of the Apostle Paul, very familiar words. He wrote to the Corinthians, those Christians in the ancient city of Corinth, stand firm. Let nothing move you. In other words, let nothing trouble you. Let nothing unsettle you. And they lived in a far worse society than we do. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain, is not in vain. Amen.